Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. And I thank you for joining us today as we take a look and honor uh, the promulgation of Veritata Splendor, <clears throat> excuse me, 30th anniversary. And to help us understand this uh, profound encyclical, we've asked Dr. Stephen Long to join us. He's professor of theology at Ave Maria University. He received his uh, undergraduate and master's degree in philosophy from the University of Toledo. His doctorate was received at the Catholic University of America, and he serves as an ordinarius at the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas at the Vatican. He's a theologian and philosopher who's been teaching with distinction at Ave Maria University for over 13 years. He's an authority on the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas and is an internationally honored author who's published three major theological and philosophical works and co-edited two others. These have received acclaim by scholars around the world. He's also published over 60 peer-reviewed scholarly essays and is an ardent devotee of the Dominican and Thomistic maxim to contemplate and share the fruits of contemplation, which is what he'll share with us today. Dr. Long, good to have you back here. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Would you just begin by placing um, Veritatis Splendor in the body of John Paul II's work? What's its significance in the overall project? Well, it needs to be seen in a way that, of course, when when one deals with the papal writing, it isn't... Um, the, the, the writing is is not simply his, as it were, any longer. In yes, other words, that's right. it's not simply um, an addition to his curriculum vitae because it <laughs> articulates the mind of the Church and it, it belongs to the Church. Uh, and, but in his own thought, this represents a response uh, to the conditions that were uh, theologically and philosophically widespread at the moment that he uh, sought to address these conditions by issuing the encyclical. And the remote preconditioning of this has to do with his uh, great love and respect for the teaching of Aquinas and the Church's own uh, large-scale uh, adoption of much of his thought within the magisterium regarding uh, the moral life itself, something which he notes in Veritatis Splendor itself, uh, so that it, this is uh, an articulation of that proceeds from his profound awareness of the distinctive role of Thomas as Doctor Communis, uh, as not simply another of the fathers, as it were, but as having a distinctive role with respect to uh, the teaching church, and noting uh, widespread conditions that required, and still to a large degree do require, uh, redress and, 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 and correction. But of course, at the time that he wrote this encyclical, uh, these these circumstances were were uh, amazingly permeating. I'll put it that way. This and, was a rejection of natural law in Saint Thomas's thinking. Well, more than that, it okay. was that, but it it, it 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 proceeded from complex sources. Some of them 
innocent uh, but errors theologically that nonetheless have implications, Mm -hmm. others being just gravitationally profound derangements of moral thought. And on the latter score, one of the... We, we we see the insistence that human nature is so submerged in historical change that the church can no longer define particular moral norms. Karl Rahner, before the council, held with the tradition that the church could define particular moral norms. After the council, uh, owing, he, he argued, to the historicity of human life, it was impossible for the church to define particular moral norms. And uh, there was also this view that the church needed to accommodate the uh, horizons and needs of contemporary culture, and uh, the notion of translation of the teaching of the church to a new circumstance was taken as more than merely uh, semantic. So, mm. I mean, we see, see this even in the realm of doctrine. Henri Bouillard had written years earlier that doctrine, Catholic doctrine, doesn't have a fixed conceptual content, that, mm. it's, that the conceptual content is always changing. Uh, mm. And the traditional view was, well, it does have fixed content. There is development of doctrine, right. and we can distinguish development from mutation because development does not deny, does not simply negate what what came before, but perfects it, further articulates it. Um, uh, and, 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 and there was another strand, too, which was a desire for a purely scriptural morality. Okay. That, that, that the natural law emphasis was too um, distracting from, from uh the, the scriptural character of the church's teaching, and Benedict actually uh, commented on this in a remarkable uh, and at that point hitherto unpublished uh, article. Um, this is back in 2019 when he said, uh, "Quote: The natural law option was largely abandoned, wow. and a moral theology based entirely on the Bible was demanded." And you know, but this led, he said at the end, to a crude kind of consequentialism, a crude um, uh, insistence that um, good consequences, good outcomes, could drive everything. Uh, what we would express by the erroneous phrase, "the end justifies the means," is mm-hmm. erroneous because the real maxim is the end doesn't justify any means whatsoever. Right. Right. The end didn't justify a means. It, it wouldn't be a means. But, I, I, I want to come back and yeah. in, in, in go over this consequentialism more carefully, but I wanted to just throw out something that I thought of as you were talking. Earlier this year, Cardinal uh, Jean-Claude Hollerich, uh, who's the synod on synodality's later general, said that the Church needs to rethink its opposition to homosexual acts in order to account for new sociological scientific advancements. And mm-hmm. leading me to ask, well, certainly we want to know all we can uh, from sociology and the psychological sciences, but the opposition to homosexual acts isn't dependent upon 
discoveries in the field of psychology or sociology, is it? No, no. Uh, I mean, this. Uh, it might be that the uh, there could be circumstances discovered that might affect uh, uh, how we try to give direction to people who are suffering uh, with temptation sure. in that respect, or uh, and 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 sociology and psychology and. Uh, those discoveries and it could could be pertinent there. Sure. Um, but you see, this is this is part and parcel of the, of this uh, sense that the entirety of the moral teaching is a kind of mere um, uh, contingent datum that is open to indefinite change, yeah. and. Uh, this is problematic. I mean, this is this represents a genuine um, theological problem because if it exists at the level of doctrine itself, not just moral doctrine, but doctrine, and it, and it does, there are a lot of people who consider that doctrine is a kind of mere epiphenomenon of what is fundamentally um, independent of doctrine. Yeah, uh, which has never been the traditional Catholic teaching. But if it's true there, well, then in the moral life, yeah. you can see the the temptation to view it in this way is even greater. Um, Does and, it? Um, it this seems is very problematic. It, yeah, You're quite it's, right. It's very problematic. It it seems. What I don't understand is how uh, these men and women could affirm this, and at the same time. Uh, continue to claim to be catholic in some way because well, we don't un- it seems the problem. That, yeah it's a council of despair i mean if i if i yeah. say jesus is lord uh today uh realizing that yes there are cultural components to understanding lordship and you know caesar is lord etc cetera, etc cetera. but the phrase jesus is lord remains true today uh, just as it remained true in the first century when saint paul was writing um if I can't say that, then what is? How do you define? <laughs> how do you define Catholic content? Well, the, the the problem is that that the other view turns Catholic life into a sort of papal chain dance. You know, <laughs> Pope goes left, we go left, Pope goes right, we go right. You know, okay. and and, and it, it, doctrine is something. I mean, this is one of the few points on which Cardinal Dulles concurred with Karl Rahner because he agreed with Rahner that uh, and with the tradition, the, the vast the overwhelming consensus of the tradition that uh, the Pope is subject to um, the doctrine of faith in its, in its entirety that is the, the papal office uh, is for preserving and developing and protecting uh, the doctrine of the faith, among many other things, but central among them. Uh, and in the same way that there's no marital power to contracept or to abort, there's no papal power to divicate with respect to the rule of faith. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, this is, uh, and you know, we have we we have genuinely. Um, uh, what would one call it? Uh, 
we have we have the legacy of of uh, this this inertial axial rejection of the analogical intelligibility of faith and yeah. morals this yeah. rejection of doctrine still with us where where the view is that uh, it's an epiphenomenon yeah. of of what is a kind of existential accommodation to the moment. Uh, uh, Dr. Long, hold, hold it there. We've got to take a break. We'll come back and continue the conversation. Dr. Stephen Long is my guest, uh, professor of philosophy and uh, the, er, professor of theology at Ave Maria University. I'm Al Cresta, taking a look at John Paul II's Veritatis Splendor. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We are marking the 30th anniversary of the promulgation of Veritatis Splendor. August 6th, uh, formally, was the uh, promulgation. Uh, many people consider this to be St. Pope John Paul II's most important encyclical. And it comes at a time where there's a crisis of truth, not only in the world, but uh, in the Church. There's uh, the claim that historical and cultural conditions had changed uh, and will continue to change such that it's futile to try and articulate a universal uh, moral theology or uh, come up with universal doctrinal statements. Uh, we are we have living within contingent circumstances. Basically, things change, so you can't come up with uh, doctrinal norms and moral norms that don't change. Uh, how widespread... Uh, my guest, by the way, is, is Dr. Stephen Long, professor of theology at Alvey Marine University. How, how widespread was this uh, sense of futility about art, being able to articulate universal, you know, Catholic morality? Well, well, in certain theological circles, it was extremely widespread, uh, and. Um, not just Karl Rahner, Bernard Herring, the uh, redemptorist father who wrote uh, extensively in moral theology uh, and who largely adopted uh, the view condemned in in Veritatis Splendor of uh, fundamental option Mm -hmm. moral thought. That is this view that nothing by nature is such that if one knowingly embraces it as an act, it could separate one from communion with God. Nothing is like that except a direct rejection of God himself. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, when, I, option. when I returned uh, to the church, I, my first confession back, the priest I happened to have, well, I started going over, you know, sins, consequences. I mean, I tried to lay out what 32 years had uh, given me, and he finally said, look, you don't have to do this. Just we can do this fundamental option thing. Do you love God? <laughs> and that was supposed to be the end of the confession, you know. Yeah, um, you're, you're 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 giving me a wry memory. I remember <laughs> a confession when um, a priest said to me, "You know, during the council part of this, you know, we have to get rid of this natural law idea." <sighs> and 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 he went on to say, "But and and you never." Don't ever say I think, only say I feel. <laughs> and then he wouldn't give me a penance, so I kept saying, but Father, I, 
<laughs> I feel I need a penance. <laughs> and after I'd said that for about five minutes, he despaired of of of, of me uh, not nagging him <laughs> further, and so he gave me one out of compassion wow. for my poor rigorous soul. Uh, but, uh, but I, I, you know, this is this was a very widespread. Yeah, I mean, Harry. I mean, you had Charlie Curran, of course. Yeah. Like you. And Bernard Herring had this three volumes, The Law of Christ. I mean, this was serious yeah. stuff. I mean, this, they worked yeah, hard yeah. at and, this. And, and we have intentionalism with us yet today, which is a kind of, uh, it's a kind of proportionalism for people who are too bright to be proportionalists. Uh, <laughs> that is, yeah. um, for, for people unfamiliar know. with the term, what is proportionalism? It, it, it's it's a view that it, 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 the whole account is an imitation of normative teleology and natural law. So it takes the it apes the idea of normative teleology and natural law that a good action is one where uh, a good end is pursued through a proportionate action in circumstances that are due. And it takes this, and instead it it makes good action to be action that is proportional to merely to good outcomes. And while an end is a kind of outcome, outcome goes far beyond end. Mm -hmm. End is what specifies our action. It's that for the sake of which we're acting. An outcome is just anything at all. So, for example, um, the example I might use in a class occasionally is that if someone came in and said, if you... Professor Long, if you don't kill one of your students right now with this weapon I'll give you that can only be fired at one of your students and no one else, if you don't do this, everyone here will die, Yeah, you and all your students. So you either pick one. Now, a, a proportionalist view might say, well, fewer people will die if if you kill the one student. Right. right. And I told my, my, my students, if that ever happens, which is extremely unlikely, but if it ever does, you should start making your act of contrition because <laughs> I'm not doing it. You're, you know, because we're responsible for our actions and yeah. for their ends and for adjudicating the circumstances. But the outcomes, the wider consequence, is exceeds our providence. Right. right. You know, I may go to school to teach one day, and someone um, uh, defenestrates. You know, jumps out of a window. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, out of despair, there's Professor Long again. Well, I didn't go there to have that effect. <laughs> That's, it might be enough. So it, it, it turns the ethical life into scrabble, uh, and and it, it it it's fairly you know straightforward. It, it it says there are premoral goods. You want the best arrangement of these you can get. There can't be any fixed answer to what this is, and so you just do the best you can. Yeah. And things that that the traditional natural law account would designate as as evils, as Malaman say, things that should never be done, become merely um, lesser goods. Now, in some way, I mean, physically speaking, it might be true, but morally, it isn't true. Morally, uh, certain actions are such that they can't contribute to a good life. Yeah. And so they should never be done. Yeah, and that was so. Yeah. There are in, in, I mean, in, Veritatis Splendor reminded us that there are intrinsically evil acts. Then, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are simply acts that, by their nature, can't be well ordered uh, to the ultimate end. Yeah, and, and they're so, not arbitrary rules. I mean, they are destructive of of human life. 
right? I mean, yeah, it, that's exactly right. Yeah. They, they set the the floor of the moral life. Uh, the ceiling is is a perf- an order of perfection and 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 ultimate happiness, but the floor uh, are are constituted by these negative norms. That is, if one if one uh, lives in a way that can't be ordered to the ultimate end, that's a terrible thing for the one living in that way. Right, right. Uh, and it's it's terrible uh, in in every in every sense. Uh, Intentionalism has been more subtle, though. I mean, it, it, Veritatis Splendor uh, is uh, very famously uh, uh, associated, um, very famously associated with um, the insistence on the te- the teleological nature of moral action as distinct from consequentialism, or what they call in Europe teleologism, which is a bad way to designate it. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but um, in in number, uh, what is it now? I always forget the number. I think it's 78, um, uh, uh, where where you find in Veritatis Splendor, uh, John Paul II addressing the nature of the moral object and um, arguing um, that... Um, this is not to be mistaken for a merely physical reality, um, but as is to be taken as something that is chosen as a matter of deliberate will. Um, and people have then used that to argue that, uh, paradoxically, that this means that the nature of what we're doing doesn't specify our action because they say, well, you're just turning it into something physical. Um, uh, you know, the, the line from 78 is, but by the object of a given moral act, then one cannot mean a process or an event of, a, of the merely physical order to be assessed on the basis of its ability to bring about a given state of affairs in the outside world. Rather, that object is the proximate end of a deliberate decision which determines the act of willing on the part of the acting person. So in other words, what's being said is that it isn't merely as a physical act that the act is a moral act, because if I'm doing something while sleepwalking, I'm not morally culpable. Right, right, right. Right, but but it goes on to say, very next line, consequently, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches... There are certain specific kinds of behavior that are always wrong to choose because choosing them involves a disorder of the will that is a moral evil, end mm-hmm. quote. And, you know, this is where some very well-intentioned people just go astray. Um, uh, I remembered, I, I, I'm reminded of the, um, the view of some people of craniotomy, oh, yes. this is the procedure Crushing where the, of the, head of the, the conceived child uh, has its skull crushed because the baby is uh, stuck in in the birth canal yeah. and the mother's life is imperiled and the thought is well if we don't crush the skull we can't pass the child and save the mother now this was pertinent more before cesarean sections came in mm-hmm. but even at that time the church said well um, you can't it's not safe to teach this as permissible and when they were asked could it be done it would always say no 
but the the reason is clear that by the nature of the case, when you crush the skull of the child, you're injuring the child and not doing a medical act. Um, and um, so, uh, but but there are people who actually argued that when the doctor would crush the skull, he's not really harming the child. He's merely redesigning the dimensions of the skull. Hey. Yeah, and I just imagine, you know, try that at the office. I mean, I, I'm, not re- I'm not hurting you. I'm merely redesigning the dimensions of your skull. Uh, you know, th- this is, um, I, I used to joke with people, I'd say, look, this is like someone asks you to light a cigarette and you flamethrower him. You know? And you say, well, uh, I'm he, not really he, he asked for burning light. him. I'm merely uh, lighting, uh, adding light and warmth to the world, one person at a time. <laughs> you know, I mean, in other, what it permits us to do is to rationalize indefinitely the nature of what we're doing. We saw this at uh, St. Joseph's Hospital uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, a few years back, where um, a woman who was suffering from hypertension, a pregnant woman who was suffering from hypertension, and her life was seriously in jeopardy, but the hospital performed what uh, would ordinarily be viewed as an abortive procedure, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and um, it lost its Catholic status. But the hospital was defended by a scholar at, from the University of Marquette who argued, look, um, the intention was to help the mother. Since the intention was to help the mother, it couldn't have been um, uh, a per se malum with respect to the child. Wow. And, wow. of course, you have the same problem here. That is, by the nature of what was being done, and it was understood that this was involved by the nature of what was done, that removing the placenta involves ripping the fetus up in right. tiny bits. And arguably, the placenta is... It's either a shared organ of child and mother, or it's the child's organ, because it's the organ of the child's um, oxygenation and nutrition. So, um, well, you know, this, I, I, I give another example sometimes to my students. Yeah, unfortunately... I say, supposing, uh, I have, supposing I have high blood pressure, and my in-laws drive me crazy, yeah. and every time they come up, my blood pressure goes up. And they chase me down, and I go have to go to the hospital a few times because you drive my blood pressure crazy. And finally, they show up at the motel door, and I shoot them. <laughs> <laughs> God, we've got to take a break right now. <laughs> 